Welcome to the OC24 podcast, where we've taken some of the best talks and discussions from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime, which showcases some of the most interesting research into organised crime around the world. This episode is called Money Laundering. Hello, everybody. Um, my name's Nicholas Gilmore, and I'm the moderator for this session. This session is uh, 8A. It's a regular panel session. Uh, titled Money Laundering. Um, in this session, we'll have 10-minute presentations from five speakers. And at the end of the five presentations, we'll have enough time, hopefully, to um, manage a series of questions from the audience. Um, so if you've got any questions throughout the presentations, um, please add them into the, um, uh, the chat forum. And um, we'll go through those questions and hopefully get enough to um, ask each of our panellists um, a couple of awkward questions to really test them about their subject today. So it's my pleasure as moderator to introduce the five sessions uh, and the five speakers. Um, we're, we're going to go in the order that was presented in the agenda. So um, first up is myself, I'm not wishing to jump the queue, but um, my name is Nicholas Gilmore and um, I'm going to deliver the first presentation on how global approaches to preventing money, uh, to preventing and detecting money laundering have become um, extremely complicated. Um, and, and basically for, uh, changed the strategies over, over the last couple of years. Um, I'll be followed by Maker, uh, who's a researcher, PhD candidate in criminology, and he will discuss the outcomes of his study that uncovers uh, recurrent patterns in the behavior of money launderers to gain insights into investments in business sectors um, following this intervention. Uh, Joanne Kramer will follow Mako and um, she will talk, she's a PhD candidate at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands and Institute of Study of Crime and Law Enforcement. Um, she will present her article on money laundering as business and covert networks of professional money launderers, which investigates how professional money launderers structure and operate their business. So a very exciting presentation. Crispin is an award-winning financial crime and compliance specialist with extensive experience in regulatory compliance, risk controls, governance, and assurance. Um, he's the head of risk and compliance at Automic Group, um, based in Sydney, Australia. And he will discuss the topic of financial intelligence and how it can be used as unifying force against trade-based money laundering, uh, particularly in relation to illicit flows stemming from organized crime groups and terrorist networks. And the session will conclude with a presentation by Dirk Robertson, a visiting fellow, member of the European Consortium of Political Research and Standing Group on Organized Crime, who will explore in his presentation how organized criminals have adopted to changing markets, trading platforms and distribution infrastructures that have been decimated by the COVID-19 pandemic. So quite an exciting um, lineup of, of five presentations here. I'm hoping we'll generate lots of questions. So please, if you've got questions as the presentations happen, um, add them into the chat box and we'll have a, a really good discussion at the end because um, there's nothing better than having a chat outside of a, of a presentation format. So first of all, um, I will start um, the, the series of presentations. And um, if we can ask for the first slide to, to come up, please. Thank you very much. Um, so 
presentations around the topic of, of money laundering and the idea that it's become far too complicated. So next slide, please. So if we look at the topic of money laundering, and I'm basing this on a number of years of research, a number of years of actually asking the people on the ground what they feel about money laundering and experience of working in a national financial intelligence unit. Um, we've overcomplicated money laundering. It's become far too complicated. If you look at the just the, the list of ideas on the left-hand side there, and that's just a snapshot, you can see that we are creating more and more methodologies and typologies for money laundering. If you do a search on Financial Action Task Force or any of the other key players in the terms of money laundering, you'll find that there are typologies for virtually every possible type of money laundering and more. As a result, we find in that more and more red flags have been identified. Now, by red flags, we mean those indicators which indicate, which suggest or indicate um, quite, quite remarkably that there is a red flag because there's potential money laundering being committed. But with ideas of nearly 10,000 methods, uh, 10,000 red flags being available to be captured throughout the world, um, does that mean um, basically you can't move, you can't commit to a transaction, you can't undertake a business um, process without there being potentially a red flag being identified? In terms of dealing with anti-money laundering and countering the terrorist financing, we're developing more and more technology solutions. In fact, fintech and regtech are two of the largest growing um, markets for technology solutions. So financial technology solutions and regulatory tech solutions are covering the market hugely, and there's more and more coming on the market all of the time. And as a result, we're becoming more and more distracted with anti-money laundering and countering financing of terrorism compliance obligations. Businesses and sectors are being introduced into um, their obligations as, as compliance, uh, to meet compliance. Um, and in, in some countries, this is, this is encroaching further and further. I mean, some countries such as Australia, uh, the United Kingdom and Canada have implemented the idea of bringing lawyers and accountants and real estate agents in um, into, a, into a framework. Uh, whereas countries like New Zealand have really fully done that, but that compliance focus is, seems to be a reaction to not dealing with the initial problem of money laundering. And of course, as a result, the number of people introduced into compliance and all these technology solutions, uh, we're creating more and more training um, opportunities. So training is coming from every direction to every level of the sector. Next slide, please. But from my experience and the research I've undertaken and the people I've listened to, unfortunately, we know very little about who, why, how, where, when and where money laundering is taking place. Um, we know there are people involved. We know why it's being done. We know roughly how it's being done from the typology reports and the, and the studies that we hear. Uh, we know roughly when it's being done. And that's usually after the crime has been committed. And we roughly know where. But the actual details are not necessarily as factually correct as what we believe. Um, and the reason why is if you talk to people, they will give you case studies and case examples of money laundering operations, which are essentially um, decades old. And there is no criminal still doing probably money laundering as they did 20 years ago, uh, doing it the same way as they do now, because the, the whole world has changed and, and not more so than um, the result of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
And you can tell this because the influence we're having on money laundering is is very little. Unfortunately, if you if you look at how much we're actually taking and how much we're stopping it. So um, it, it's, it's not great. Next slide, please. And, and the reason why we're not making much progress is because we've lost sight of the ultimate goal. Is it compliance? Is it um, actually stopping money laundering? Is it dealing with um, the, the predicate offence, the initial crime? Um, it seems that we've buried our head in the sand for too long. We think we're doing something and that's already great, but actually does what we know um, really replicate into today's money laundering practices? I think we've listened to the wrong people with the wrong intentions. There are many technology solutions out there which are driving particular businesses in the wrong direction. Um, there are many experts out there, many who have not necessarily true experts, but have taken the term experts and have decided to be an, AM, an AML compliance or a, a, an expert in training. So there's sometimes um, some, some queries to be asked around what, what people call to be um, an expert. Um, we've been unable to keep up with the money launderer. At the end of the day, the money launderer must fulfill their um, obligations, and that is um, appear to clean the illicit funds. Um, they're doing so in so many different ways. We've been really unable to keep up with them. Um, nobody's been really willing to take the lead. Um, we have the Financial Action Task Force, um, the Global Policy Setter. But actually, when it comes down to a national level, if you look at if you just try and split down um, money laundering, the, the approach to preventing money laundering from a national perspective, you'll see it's a scatter, scattergun approach. There are so many people involved in it um, and actually nobody's really taken the lead, even on a national level. And of course, we've made it an exciting, mysterious and of course linked to organised crime. So you only need to go on to Netflix or any of the other um, Hollywood type movies and there'll be. Uh, a link to money laundering and it's and it's successful money laundering because it fight it, it meets the obligations of organized criminals and yes the bodies may win but at the end of the day really have we distracted away from what money laundering is um I, sadly i think we have uh, next slide please um but at the end of the day it, all hope is not lost because it's easy to understand and recognize money laundering because if you take us globally, we have the details, we have the real details, the, that, that, um, those suspicious activity reports, those suspicious transaction reports, depending on where you sit, um, you know, in which country. We have the intelligence, we have the data. There are so many um, entities out there capturing huge amounts of data that actually when the, set, when the um, systems are put in place, they only ever look at a snippet of it because nobody will share that data. And, and, and rightfully so, usually for commercial purposes, but it does exist and so does the intelligence. And when I mean intelligence, I mean the, the details that's been analyzed, the information which has been analyzed typically by um, analysts within law enforcement who have put meaning to the data. Uh, we have good, strong empirical data and we have strong research and the presenters today and all the other presenters, you know, many of the other presenters on the LC24 will be putting forward really good research, which actually evidence um, what, what um, you know, the good work is being done. Uh, we have the technology, and by that, I don't mean the anti-money laundering compliance and CFT technology solutions. I mean, the actual technology, the, the computer capabilities do exist and, and can be um, used almost differently to, to create better meaning. And we have the tacit knowledge, and by the tacit knowledge, I mean those people who listen and hear about anti-money laundering and money laundering and organized crime and financial crime, 
and intelligence and data on a daily basis, but actually nobody ever takes them to one side and says, what do you think? What can you tell us? And what you find as researchers is that actually when you have those one-to-one -one interviews, you can draw out of your of your interviewee that, that really good tacit knowledge, which makes a huge difference. And I think we, we neglect to, 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 to ask people their opinions as much as, you know, as anything. Uh, next slide, please. So mean, all of that means, um, in, in my opinion, and of course, it, it is my opinion based on my research and the people I've spoken to have, have sort of help, helped me uh, come, to, come to this conclusion. It's easy to prevent money laundering if we throw away the typology reports. And that, and that doesn't mean completely forget them, but we throw them away and we start again. And finally, we question what the experts are telling us. Um, we, we, we appreciate what they're saying, but we take it sort of with a pinch of salt and we, we, we question them. We don't just say, because you're an expert, you must know everything. Because if you actually dig down and say, well, where did you find that information? How do you know that to be true? You can find out that sometimes what you're always being told is maybe just a generic opinion. Sometimes ignore the, the sales brochures for technology solutions. They're typically a copy and paste of what Financial Action Tax Force will justify as actions that need to be taken against money laundering. And sometimes those solutions are not always um, for the right intention. At the end of the day, many solutions are put forward as a, as a, a financial um, purpose. They, they're there to make money from an entity that purchased them. I think we need to ask people for their opinions and their thoughts. If you take uh, one example, I, I spoke to a lady who worked in suspicious transaction reports. She would review lots of the reports. And I said, you, have, you must have lots of information. She said, yes, I've, I have a real insight to what's happening in the themes. I said, has, any, has anybody ever asked you? Um, you sit next to a financial intelligence unit. You're part of a financial intelligence unit. Has anybody ever asked you what your opinions are? She said, no, which I think is a shame. And I think we need to combine all the information and all the, all the um, relevant data into one place. We need to use it and we need to continually update it because if we're going to deal with a problem of, such as money laundering, it needs to be the right information, it needs to be used and it needs to be kept up to date because over years, 20, 30 years, we've not kept up to date what the activities of the money launderer are. That's why we've struggled to deal with money laundering. Thank you very much. Next slide. That's it. That's that's it from me. So I, I, I'm pleased to have uh, finished first because that now allows me some um, some time to look at the questions. Um, next uh, presentation is from Merco, please. Over to you. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Nicholas. Um, just share my screen. Yes, we can see it. Thank okay. you. Perfect. Uh, thanks a lot. So, um, yes, um, as said by, by Nicholas, I will present uh, actually um, uh, a presentation uh, called Run Covering Recurrent Patterns in the Behavior of Money Launderers and Empirical Analysis of Investments in Business Sector. It actually uh, is a study partially derived by my master's degree thesis that I'm currently developing in parallel with my PhD thesis uh, in, uh, in criminology. Uh, so, basically, uh, as we know, uh, when we talk about criminal behavior, we know that the study of criminal behavior has been traditionally multidisciplinary with uh, uh, contribution from several academic fields, namely, of course, criminology, sociology, political science, and so on, with economics as the most recent entry. But when we look at literature on money laundering, we know that most of the contribution come actually from economists, 
not only dealing with, uh, of course, the analysis and the study of criminal behavior, but actually, of course, also trying, for example, to estimate the magnitude of the phenomenon, and also to uh, estimate and assess the effectiveness of the anti-money laundering policies in the, in the field. Uh, regarding specifically uh, criminal behavior, of, uh, criminal behavior of money launderers, we know that the baseline is the so-called economics of crime and money launderers, money laundering, where money launderers are thought to be um, rational, economic-oriented individuals who try to maximize, of course, their uh, economic profits while minimizing the risks. Uh, the so-called standard economic approach has been criticized uh, by criminologists in the in the literature because consider in a way, of course, limited and in uh, the, the need, of course, of uh, integrating some insights from other theoretical approaches, namely, and so only few of them, such as the behavioral economics, the rational choice theory, but also the legal enterprise theory. Uh, so uh, theories that in a way state that individuals, um, criminals in this case, make other consideration when uh, laundering the illicit proceeds, uh, and the death, death call rationality is not so perfect, but of course, as stated by Simon in 1955, is, is limited, is bounded uh, by several factors. Um, I report just a quote from Van Duin and colleagues that uh, I think is really interesting and pertinent that in the absence of, course, of a theory directed at the conduct of laundering wasn't to satisfy oneself with an empirical description of my behavioral categories. But when we look actually uh, at the empirical research on um, money laundering, we see that actually this research is particularly scarce as already identified by Nicolas in his, uh, in his presentation. Uh, we know very little about how criminals actually launder um, the illicit proceeds. And moreover, we, we have seen that insights stemming from empirical research do not fit uh, the standard economic approach, but criminals seem to make other consideration while laundering illicit proceeds rather than just maximizing their economic returns. In particular, and this will be the focus of the presentation, there are competing theoretical interpretations as this scarce knowledge on the business sectors that are more most exposed to money laundering. Um, so actually, the, the, the research question of the, of the presentation, the study, is, are do criminals mainly invest in highly profitable business sectors? According, of course, to the economy, uh, the economists, um, this uh, is what happens. So criminals try to maximize their, 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 their business uh, profits. But in other way, in, a, in, other, uh, in other studies, of course, criminologists who tend to, to point out that, for example, cash-intensive business sectors uh, are really important because it is the concealment, but also the integration of illicit proceeds in the legitimate economy. So I assume that criminal, rather than investing in highly profitable business sectors, we mainly invest in cash-intensive business sectors. Just a brief look at the methodology of what I've done. Uh, I conducted a continuous content analysis of the profile included in work compliance database. Uh, for those who, of you who may not, do not know this, uh, this database is actually a compliance database that is mainly used by anti-money laundering professional or on their daily uh, routine for basically um, due diligence checks. Uh, so screening, for example, high-risk individuals and so on uh, and so forth. Um, and actually includes more than 2.5 million individuals. I have filtered this database according to some uh, criteria. Uh, I, follow, of course, focus on Italy. Uh, I focus on um, individuals included in the database for money laundering uh, and on two main data sources, so adverse media and enforcement. The final sample consisted of more than 2,800 individuals, Italian individuals, 
who engaged in, in money laundering activities. Um, the study, as I saw, is, is much broader. I focused also on, on, uh, on other categories, namely, of course, the predicate offense, the laundering the methods. But in this presentation, I will focus on business sectors. Uh, what I found is that, first of all, that almost 80% of the individuals in the sample misused, so abused companies uh, to launder the illicit proceeds. We know that, of course, the, the abuse, the misuse of company has become a key component of criminal strategies in order to launder the lift procedure, also infiltrating the legal economy. Uh, and when we look at the business sectors uh, with the highest number of references, um, we found that actually there are the, the, the three uh, main business sectors are the, the, the national air entertainment, um, the national uh, retail, um, wholesale and retail, and the national bars, restaurants and hotels. Um, looking also at the, the fourth and the fifth, we, we see that actually um, there are also high references for the health and social work um, business sector and construction. This is not surprising as we know that these first, for example, the, the five sectors are actually also considered at high risk of organized infiltration, uh, as also calculating the project more is a European project um, to assess the, the, the risk of infiltration across business sectors. Um, but what we see is actually the, the, um, the profitability of these, of these sectors, we, we see that these, they are not strictly um, high in the profitability of sectors. Uh, actually, uh, all the, um, the, the first five business sectors for, uh, for number of references are out of the first 10 business sector with the highest business growth profitability as calculated in the YARN, uh, the YARN project. I just reported the numbers uh, for, for clarity, but what we see that, for example, uh, there's all score up below the 8% of business growth profitability, while the, the highest, uh, the, the, the business sector with the highest profitability score more than the 20, 20%. Um, on the contrary, these, uh, these, um, these sectors are all cash intensive ones. Uh, in the young, as calculating the young uh, projects, for example, the construction sector and the wholesale retail sector are the two uh, business sectors with highest cash intensiveness. In this case, calculating of cash and current assets on the total assets. Um, and also, the other three are uh, really relevant and uh, really cash intensive, uh, cash intensive sectors. But why is that? Um, cash intensive sectors allow criminals to commingle illicit funds, first of all, uh, more easily, of course, on a daily basis, to conceal illicit inflows and outflows to, of course, accounting manipulation. And also, uh, this is a relevant point to sell more easily assets in case of a criminal investigation. Of course, cash, cash and current assets um, can be more easily managed compared to non-current assets by, by criminals. Of course, this is just as an option for, for, for the, the sake of the brevity of the presentation, um, because as we know, other factors also intervene. All these sectors may serve also other criminal purposes that I, I will be more than happy to discuss with you later uh, during the, the, the Q&A session. So that's it for, uh, from my side. Thanks a lot. Uh, Michael, thank you very much for um, that presentation. Um, I, 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 I was really interested in that topic because, of course, um, I've done some work on cash-intensive businesses. But um, I guess your research really emphasises the fact that cash is still king. And 
Um, yes. Despite the fact that we're generally moving to cashless societies, um, it, it's an activity which is very difficult for criminality to, to get rid of large amounts of cash. And, and the three sectors there that you find in your um, findings there, you identify in your findings, are very much focused on the cash ability or the ability to use cash to, to, to manage those sectors. So um, it, it doesn't give a clear indication that we are moving to a cashless society just from what you see in your research. So that will be interesting to see how that um, plays out for the future. Um, we're going to move on now. So thank you for your presentation. Um, Joanne, um, the, the floor is yours. Um, you're going to talk about money laundering as a business. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Nicholas. Um, yeah, sharing started. Thank you. Uh, yeah, next slide, please. Um, yeah, I will start my uh, presentation with a short background, um, after which I will explain the goal of my current study and the sample that we used. Um, and after that, I will present you the uh, preliminary results uh, of the study. Uh, next slide, please. Um, in the literature, there is discussion on when professional money launderers are involved in organized crime. There are drug criminals who launder their own money, so-called self-launderers. But when stakes are high, uh, professional money launderers often come into play. The term professional is actually not limited to protected professions such as lawyers or notaries public, but can, for instance, also be applied to underground bankers. What makes a money launderer professional uh, is that he offers financial crime as a service and is not involved in a predicate crime. Professional money launderer is uh, someone who assists a criminal in some key way with money laundering. In a recent international report from the Financial Action Task Force, it is stated that professional money launderers can work on projects in collaboration, uh, thereby forming professional money laundering networks. Next slide, please. Um, yeah, this then uh, leads us to our current study in which we focus on professional money launderers in the Netherlands using police register data. And we examine the level of business-like behavior within professional money laundering. And we examine whether professional money laundering networks in the Netherlands exist using social network analysis. Finally, we study the relationship between network position and business-like behavior. Next slide, please. Um, our sample consists of 198 professional money launderers from police registered data. And they are suspect in at least one case in the period 2016 to 2020. And they've all been working for drug criminals. We excluded self-launderers who launder their own money. And we used the number and reputation of their criminal contacts and stakes involved as a selection criteria. Another criterion that, uh, was that when a money launderer facilitated consumption, he not only accepted the illegal revenues, but also provided a false paper trail for the criminal. The data set that we used is this based on police register data and contains information about professional money onwards, the cases they are involved in, and their criminal contacts in these cases. Next slide, please. Um, yeah, this figure uh, shows the distribution of professional money onwards over the different expertise groups. We clearly see that the largest group is formed by underground bankers, followed by the group Financial Advice 
which includes advisors from the financial administrative sector, bookkeepers, accountants, and lawyers or ex-lawyers. A large part of professional money launderers falls in a real estate group, uh, which consists of real estate traders and agents and rental agents. The entrepreneurs uh, own small to medium-sized businesses and uh, not only accept cash money from criminals, but also play an active role in hiding their customers and their financial flows. The group of notaries public um, also contains former and candidate notaries public. And uh, the following group in figure uh, sets up and uses legal entities for money laundering purposes. The final category, uh, virtual asset service providers, uh, includes, for instance, Bitcoin exchangers or ATM operators. Next slide. Um, so uh, we analyzed the level of business-like behavior within our population of professional money launderers. And therefore, we used four different characteristics to typify business-like behavior. Uh, these are the number of cases a money launderer is suspected in, their number of customers and returning customers, and the percentage of familial contacts. The money launderers are on average suspected in, uh, in 5.3 cases and have 13.8 customers. For the money launderers who have at least one returning customer, the average amount of returning customers is 4.6. On average, around one-fourth of a professional money launderer's contacts is a family member. And um, as we can see in this figure, uh, there are large differences between the money launderers. Uh, some are suspected in only one case and uh, only have a few customers, while others are involved in over 30 cases and have dozens of customers. Next slide. In terms of their uh, level of business-like behavior, we compared money launderers that collaborate with at least one other money launderer to the money launderers that do not collaborate with other money launderers as we expected collaborating money launderers to behave more business-like. As shown here, we found that collaborating money launderers are indeed involved in significantly more cases and have significantly more customers and returning customer, customers, uh, therefore behaving more business-like. Um, we actually also expected them to have a lower percentage of familial contacts, but we did not find a significant difference between the two groups on uh, this specific characteristic. Next slide. Based on the literature, we um, expected that underground bankers have more familial relationships than the other money launderers. And um, our results show that they do indeed uh, more often have familial relationships than other money launderers. 39.5% of all their relationships concerns a familial relationship, while this is only 20.5% for other money launderers. And uh, this finding is also significant when we just consider relationships with customers or just relationships with other money launderers. Next slide. Um, based on the contact registrations, we performed a social network analysis. Uh, from the 198 money launderers, 117 have had contact with at least one other money launderer and are thus part of the network as is shown here. We can see that there is one larger component that consists of 65 money launderers, while there are also multiple smaller components. Most of the money launderers in the network are underground bankers, and uh, they mainly collaborate with each other. Uh, and we can see connections between the financial advice group and the real estate group. Um, especially at the bottom of the largest component, we see a part of the network that's strongly focused on the real estate sector. 
Uh, on the right of the figure, we also see that the virtual asset service providers uh, only collaborate uh, within their own group. Next slide. Um, here we see uh, the same figure as in a previous slide, but now the size of the nodes in the network is based on their degree centrality, which is a network measure that tells us the amount of money launderers that the money launderer is directly connected to. And uh, most money launderers in a network only have a connection to one or two money launderers and are just very uh, small in this network, in this figure. Um, but some have uh, more connections and are just bigger. And the biggest note uh, is the uh, orange one at the bottom, uh, which is a financial advisor. And this money launderer has a connection to nine other uh, money launderers. Next slide. Um, yeah, this is again the same figure, but now the node size is based on their between the centrality, which is a measure that shows the amount of influence a node has over the flow of information in a network. The largest nodes can be seen as brokers because they connect different parts of the network and thus have a strong position. Um, we see that multiple financial advisors have a very strong position as well as some underground bankers. Um, the entrepreneur, that's the green node, uh, is also an important broker and uh, that's actually a car dealer. Next slide. Um, yeah, and then uh, finally, we uh, also analyzed the relationship between network position and the level of business-like behavior. As expected, uh, those with more central positions in a network tend to score higher on characteristics of business-like behavior. Uh, this means that when betweenness and degree, uh, degree and betweenness centrality increase, the number of cases, uh, the number of customers, and the number of returning customers rise. Um, ego network density then, uh, is a measure that increases when uh, the professional money launderers in a money launderers ego network also have connections with each other. Uh, so when there's less interconnectedness and there's less density in the ego network of a money launderer, um, he has a stronger position because he's then the only one with access to information from all the people in his network and can just benefit from that. Um, so also as we uh, expected, we found that those who have a lower ego network density tend to score higher on uh, these characteristics of business-like behavior. Uh, next slide. Uh, so to uh, conclude, uh, most professional money launderers collaborate with other money launderers and thus form professional money laundering networks. Uh, those professional money launderers also show more business-like behavior than money launderers that do not collaborate with others. Our study also shows that levels of business-like behavior differ quite a lot between money launderers, and the money launderers with more central positions in the network tend to show more business-like behavior than others. And that was it. Thank you. Well, thank you for that presentation, Joanne. Um, that, that was extremely interesting, and the use of social network analysis was, was clearly the right um, tool for your particular study so far to date, because to be able to identify those nodes um, with such clarity and clearly identify if you were in a prevent, you know, from a law enforcement approach, if you wanted to take out um, the key players, the social network analysis is basically pointing clearly where you need to go and knock on the door of um, and, and ask the, the, the right questions of, preferably back at the police station with somebody sat in handcuffs. Um, but to be able to identify professional money launderers such as that um, seems to evidence um, 
more severity in money laundering, more, more um, should we say, more uh, professionalism over than what I think Europol indicated um, a while back of identifying only 400 professional money launderers. Um, if, if you replicate your particular study worldwide, um, it certainly drives in the need for introducing lawyers, accountants and real estate agents into the AML compliance because you've identified many of them there just even involved in real estate. So um, a really interesting piece of work that um, I'm sure will attract many, much attention in terms of the, the, final, um, the final report and, and for people to read. So um, I expect your inbox will be full of, please, can I read the final report, which I, I, I would certainly like to do myself at some point. So thank you very much for that presentation. It was, um, it was, it was lovely to hear. Um, and now we're going to go to Crispin. Uh, Crispin's um, not quite at the end, uh, our final presenter, but he's going to talk about financial intelligence and how it can be used at unifying force against trade-based money laundering. So um, over to you, Crispin. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nick. And uh, OC24, uh, it's a pleasure and a privilege to be on this panel on money laundering. The paper that I'm working on is a trade-based money laundering, specifically how we unify how we can unify financial intelligence to harden the environment against trade-based money laundering. Given the uh, short time frame that we have, I'll, I'll take you on what I call a quick motorcycle tour across an art gallery. I'll include my contact details at the end of the, in case if you need a copy of the slides and the report will be coming out in the new year if you want to know more about this important issue. So um, in the, there was a report that was out from uh, Asian Development Bank, and they were uh, talking about how there was a trade finance gap. Uh, essentially, the global trade finance uh, gap grew from an all-time all high of $1.7 trillion in 2020. And this was a 15% increase uh, from two years ago. Um, and the figure that we're looking at is a 1.5 trillion to 1.7 trillion. So there's an increase of 15% in the trade uh, finance gap. And what, why is that a problem? And what was the barriers around it? Um, and on specifically, when they came to the analysis from the Asian Development Bank, the number one barrier that is you know, causing a problem to um, you know, that sort of trade financing and payment of trade is due to the anti-money laundering, you know, know your customer requirements or KYC. And that's at about 72% in the report that was issued in October this year. Uh, trade-based money laundering, what is it? Tra or trade-based financing, terrorist financing, what does, what does it mean? Uh, it's, it's very similar to, you know, the, the principle around it, and that is to disguise the proceeds of crime and moving value through the use of trade transaction to legitimize the illicit origins. When it comes to trade uh, financing uh, or, or terrorist financing, it comes from it can come from both legitimate and illegitimate sources, uh, and that way that actually increases the complexity in detecting and disrupting uh, trade-based terrorist financing. So it's the movement of value. Uh, and for those that are not familiar with trade-based money laundering, uh, this is some of the uh, methods that they uh, employ. Uh, and that is to do with the invoicing, uh, under invoicing, where the amount is a, a smaller amount, over invoicing, where you inflate the value of the uh, goods, uh, phantom shipping, where there is no delivery of, uh, of that particular goods that you ordered, or multiple invoicing or short shipping, where you under deliver the amount or the quantity of the goods. So this gives you a picture of what can be done by organized crime and terrorist uh, uh, financiers. 
So how does uh, transnational organized crime uh, come in? So they see a gap in there and they, they exploit it. They have the mode of operation and they look into how they can move, you know, drug trafficking, customs fraud, uh, things to do with pharmaceutical or pharma, uh, or medical fraud. They're exploiting the commercial uh, networks that would lead to moving the value and they identify greater opportunities to combine their illicit funds or activities into legitimate trade and financial system. So it's great creating a, a great challenge for that particular industry. And how do we solve it? And what I'm proposing here is we need to look at how we manage the risk. So what is the MLTF risk? How can we prioritize in managing those risks? Uh, and how can we use data and trade uh, and financial information, how we can blend it in together and synthesize to help us make informed decision? And finally, how we can collaborate uh, with law enforcement agencies and, and, um, and the regulators as to how we can identify uh, those anomalies and apply uh, emphasis on the ones that gives us the greatest risk. So prioritization, how can we manage that sort of risk? Um, we, we need to have a harmonized system where financial institution, what doesn't matter if they are 500 years old financial institution or five months old, we need to have an ability to derive rich data and help us uh, arrive at time sensitive insights to combat uh, money laundering and terrorist financing. We need to be able to do real time risk assessment embed it as part of that review and also help us determine and act with urgency. Uh, and and that's, that's the data that gives us that insights to make decisions. And there was a report from the Singapore uh, AML uh, industry partnership where they came up with a set of uh, guidance on how they can look at you know, a qualitative and a quantitative measure of risk, uh, what is inherent, um, and where, where, where they are coming from is to really think about adopting a risk-based approach on various factors that are included in those countries uh, involved in the transaction. So things to do with the relationship, the trading partners, the, the bank that you deal with, the counterparties. So these indicators over here on screen would be things like, you know, how many customs are we talking about? Are they of a particular nature uh, and complexity? What is the value and the volume of trade transaction? Are they coming from a high-risk jurisdiction? What was the uh, customers that was on board in the last uh, several months uh, conducting trade transaction? Are they using financial products other than uh, what you are serving for that client? So identifying the, the customers and doing risk rating of a customer will allow you to form a view as to whether this would present an inherent uh, risk to your organization. And what we do is take those data and blend it with the financial data and the trade information. So we want to think about using technology and, and data to develop that insight. So taking the identification of the customer, monitoring the relationship and the behavior around transactional analysis, uh, identifying and implementing regulatory updates to comply with the uh, AML CFT requirements. Um, we want to automate the, the reporting to make sure that we update and inform the regulators or the financial intelligence unit. So adopting supervised machine learning, unsupervised, identifying, you know, drawing a cohesive grouping of the behavior and doing the alert scoring. And that scoring allows you to uh, make informed decision. And why is correct data relevant for international business? 
we look at trade as an international um, you know, activity that's across the world. Uh, there are, you know, business are faced with a, a data or multiple identification system, subjects and objects that are part of that supply chain that increases the operational costs. We operate in a digital economy. And what does that mean is we need to have an end-to-end -end identification of the goods and the supply chain. And also think about harmonizing the compliance challenges that banks and financial institutions have to comply to adhere to do the right thing by their company. And one of the challenges that they are facing is to do with price checking and controls or reasonableness check. So why is it so difficult to check price? Uh, it's to do with the contract details involving the party, the relationship between the customer and the bank. Um, you know, the documentation of the transaction is really specific enough to understand the type of goods to the level of granularity to, to help you determine what that specific range would apply and what's considered reasonable. There could be non-standard items like, you know, you know, having not sufficient data to benchmark a particular price or the compartment compartmentalization and itemization of specific goods, that's a lot of syllabus, can be extremely granular. So how can we group them in that various compartments to help us derive uh, a decision as a bank to make that informed decision and be in a defensible position? So where I'm coming from is you have a regulator that's asking you, what have you done to reasonably mitigate your risks to ensure that you are not um, you are not being a perpetrator or, or being an actor in facilitating money laundering or trade-based money laundering. So having that usable data set would help you uh, determine that historical pricing, determine that trading pattern and arrive at the insights that you're looking for. And of course, we are also faced with dual goods use. So what does that mean? Uh, dual goods, goods relates to software, technology, goods that can be used for both civil and military purposes. So you, we have to adhere to sanctions compliance. We have to make sure that you know, goods such as aluminum alloy is used for mascara, for bicycle and inline skates. And they're not used for you know, M16 rifles or drones that can be used for photography, but not used for spying. So just thinking about that goods and how you need to comply with sanctions is you know, highly important when you're trying to demonstrate uh, adherence to those regulations. Doesn't matter if it's United Nations sanctions or the United States, uh, you know, US uh, sanctions. Developing intelligence, how can we accelerate? How can we do that digital transformation? So what I think about when I think about these is about identifying the anomalies. What is the objective? Looking at the outliers, determining where we can eliminate duplicate information, uh, doing deep learning, applying you know, very basic stuff such as um, you know, natural language processing, you know, identifying documents and turning paper documents into digital format and implementing it to an extent, a, a, a way to comply with the regulatory requirement and, make, and help you arrive at making decisions uh, whether you want to approve deny or put it on hold. And with the artificial intelligence and machine learning, we are focusing on you know, the technology-based solution apply, applying on big data to strengthen the ongoing monitoring for suspicious matters. Uh, we want to analyze uh, and distinguish uh, in real time uh, where there's a need for a human review. So that's vital. Um, the, the human review allows you to identify what those concerns are. 
And, and that, is, that is the challenge that we're facing uh, in today's environment. This is an architecture of what it looks like to have a data, data lake uh, that will complement an organization looking at the different ways to ingest information to ingest the raw data from historical, doesn't matter if you're AS400 platform to a cloud. It is about a, an organization that has 400 years of history. How can we take all the data into one common data lake and bring it up to arrive at uh, inf you know, making informed decisions for the organization? And my last point is about you know, adopting and collaborating private-public partnership. Looking at domestic cooperation, FedEx recommends policymakers, FIUs, law enforcement agencies to work together to arrive at a mechanism to derive actionable financial intelligence. Private-public partnership is an, an opportunity where they collaborate and achieve a common goal. In the AML CFT context, it's about sharing information, the typologies that Nick mentioned at the beginning, uh, looking at the emerging risks and exchanging of information. And this is gonna help you paint a holistic picture as to how we can arrive at where you want to put your energy and resource to combat financial crime. Some of the successful uh, part, private part, public partnership are found in different parts of the world. In Europe, these are the places such as the UK Joint Money Laundering Intelligence Task Force. In Finland, there is the Finnish AML Expert Working Group on PPP. Uh, in Sweden, there is the Swedish Anti-Money Laundering Intelligence Task Force. So this is all happening at the moment. In the Americas, there is things happening in the US and of course in the US with FinCEN Exchange. In Argentina, there is the Fintel uh, Alliance or Fintel uh, Collaboration Group. And of course, in Asia, there will be the Hong Kong you know, Fraud and Money Laundering Intelligence Task Force. In Singapore, there's, a, there's one that I mentioned earlier. And in Australia, uh, there is the Australian uh, Fintel Alliance that uh, relates to working with New Zealand as well, our, our neighbours um, just across the ditch. So just a bit deep dive on the Australian Fintel Alliance. Uh, uh, there Spin, is the regulator. Crispin, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to um, ask you just to sum up, please, if you don't mind. Thank so you. we've got time for Derek. Uh, yes, thank you. So uh, this is a summary of the Australian Fintel Alliance. And in conclusion, uh, where I'm coming from is about thinking how we can adopt an intelligence-led approach how we can measure, what do we do to measure our success? For example, we want to have efficiency gain. We want to reduce risk, re reduce waste. We want to increase suspicious transaction report and apply a risk-based approach. We want to think about financial inclusion with the trade finance gap that we're seeing and ultimately disrupting financial crime and infiltration of organized crime. So that's my contact details and uh, thank you very much. Crispin, um Although you went slightly over, there was so much more to talk about. So um, thank you for the um, very pleasing um, presentation slides and the information. Um, so with no further um, chat from me, I'm going to hand over to Dec. And Dec's going to talk about how organized criminals have adopted to changing markets, trading platforms, and distribution infrastructures that have decimate, been decimated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Over to you, Dec. Thank you. Good afternoon, good evening, and good morning. Um, all my, my research uh, has focused uh, on the activities of uh, cyber criminals um, and where they're actually based. Uh, different countries, um, the main countries, uh, China, Romania, Estonia, Ukraine, South Africa, Nigeria. Um, and a lot of the strategies would be helped uh, 
by sharing the information in real time. And the different types of fraud that they moved into, you've got business fraud, non-delivery of merchandise, credit card fraud, investment schemes, letter fraud, internet auction fraud, um, all moving into those areas. And again, if you look at the United States, um, the information it varies from state to state. Um, and also uh, the way that they're punished can vary as well. In California, cybercrime and fraud are known as wobblers. And they result in misdemeanors or felonies, which you up to three years in county jail. So it can vary. And there was a, there was a Californian couple uh, recently who had a whole network organized of hundreds of people involved of defrauding um, furlough schemes and money that was there to support companies uh, through the pandemic. And uh, you know, they made off of that between 20 and $30 million. They fled now. Uh, they were convicted and they were about to be come back for sentencing, but they, they fled, but they left their children. I don't know if they left them as a kind of collateral, uh, but um, off they went, taking what they obviously think the most valuable things with them. And the thing about uh, cybercrime uh, and involvement in money laundering, who is it? Well, now it's, it's basically anyone with a browser. And anybody that's actually, you know, gets involved in it, that's what fascinates me, um, is who are they? What are they doing and why are they doing it? As opposed to this, you know, faceless idea of, uh, you know, multinational organizations that are doing it. Uh, individuals are coming together, organizing, doing it, and doing it because they can. One of the things that fascinates me about uh, um, criminals uh, and people involved in money laundering and cybercrime, not it uh, extinct to this, is the idea of um, the Onion Field Syndrome. The, the Onion Field was a film, 1979 film, which is based on a 1973 book uh, about uh, two police officers uh, in California who were kidnapped and they were taken out to the Onion Field in Bakersfield. And one police officer managed to escape, but his colleague was uh, murdered. And thereafter, um, when all the attention was being paid to the case, uh, the, the police officer initially met with great sympathy and understanding. But over time, uh, people started to ask questions and to view him differently and uh, examine exactly what happened. And whilst he was taken off duties and then put on desk duties, uh, what they discovered uh, one particular time is that he'd been stealing, been shoplifting on, on a, a massive scale. But he'd been stealing stuff that he couldn't use, he didn't sell on, hadn't even come out of the wrapper. Um, and put forward this idea of uh, a syndrome whereby somebody feels that they're owed something. They don't know what or by whom, but they're, they're owed something and they'll get it by any means necessary. And my research actually kind of concentrates a lot on, you know, who are these people? And, uh, you know, and it's not all about being driven by profit. I mean, people, people involve themselves in ordinary employment and ordinary jobs uh, who have a desire to make money and, uh, and, and a desire to make profit. But this, this um, 
this predatory concept is something which I think actually gives them a common identity, uh, which is actually a bit more than just the browser. Although that's the, that's the modern way. So, I mean, when we're talking about you know, six, seven hundred billion dollars worldwide and the damage that it does to the infrastructure. So the important thing is that the information is shared between law enforcement and they're identified. And then the strategies are put in place to actually see where we're going to go from here. That's me. Uh, Derek, I've, I've listened to you before and um, it always seems to amaze me how you managed to tell a really good story to get your point across. So um, I congratulate you on that because um, that, that was completely different to all the other presentations we had, but had its own unique feature to it. So thank you. Um, so thank you to everybody who's spoken today. Um, I think we, we can go to some questions. We do, we do have a question, which um, I, I'm, I'm going to pull back into the frame. And that was one that's already been answered by um, Mako. Um, and it was from, um, it, it was around um, your study, Mako. And I know you've already answered it um, through private chat, but it, it would be nice for you just to um, to clarify that because I think it's very important that it's it's, it's the establishment of your, of your um, essentially your research, which gives it clarity. And that was was the um, was your study a sample of active criminals and, and slash prim prisoners um, convicted by the court serving time or ordinary people? Um, are you able to give a, a little bit more background to that, please? Yes, absolutely. Um, no, thanks. Thanks again for the question. I, I answered briefly, but I will go more, much more in detail. So basically, as I, I told before, uh, we, we used in the analysis the, um, the work compliance database. is actually this large compliance uh, database used by the anti-money laundering obliged entities for their uh, daily activities. Um, and specifically two main sections of this database, so the adverse media section and the enforcement section. So answering the question is that, yes, we include a wide array of uh, different individuals in, involved in money laundering, ranging from, for example, mafia members to uh, more ordinary people. Um, and that's based on uh, mainly the data source. So when we talk about enforcement data, we are talking about official um, documents, both from law enforcement and from judicial authorities. So people who have been convicted for, uh, for money laundering. In case of adverse media, for example, we are talking about news media or news articles. So uh, giving details about individuals who are still under investigation or on trial, so have not been convicted yet. Uh, but yes, we, we cover this, uh, this wide array of individuals. We are talking, of course, about more than 2,000 uh, individuals in the, in the sample. So I don't know if I answered the, the question, but yes, it's, um, it's that. No, thank you, um, Maker. That was a, that was, that was a great um, answer to um, what is essentially a really important question because um, as Joanne's work um, clarified, there's a real need to have that knowledge of what is actually happening and um, being able to speak to people who have essentially been um, 
facilitating money laundering or similar activities, it, it's critical data that you can draw out of them. But I guess you always need to be mindful that they may not always be telling you the truth or they may be telling you something which gets them out of the prison cell for a couple of hours on what would normally be a boring Wednesday afternoon looking at four, you know, the same four walls. So um, I, I think, you, you know, possibly some studies always need to take with a pinch of salt um on what evidence they're made for but no your 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 answer was uh, was really helpful thank you for that um, i'm going to go to crispin because um I, i've got a question here um that came through um and i know you talked about this dual use of topics but say for example fiberglass um if fiberglass is part of the process um how do we know it's used for golf balls or weapons of mass destruction um you know, there's, there's there's always a concern with with breaching sanctions. What what more can you? I know I know we cut you short on your presentation, so I know you've got lots to say. So I look forward to the answer. Oh, thank you, uh, Nick. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, dual use goods is continuously a challenge for for you know both importers and exporters and people that are facilitating the payment for you know for that trade. And, and the cargo and putting on the vessel going from one country to another. Uh, identifying dual use goods, you know, is part of that, you know, as part of the broader due diligence process around, it, it seems, it may seem straightforward, but when considered against the outdated or largely, you know, paper-based process and, and that undermines that maritime trade today, the task can, you know, is proving to be both very challenging and, you know, time consuming. So why, you know, I mean, th there is no, why do we need to look at this? I mean, there is no requirement that the documents associated with a shipment match with the terminology uh, used by government regulators. So, you know, when we are searching for, you know, when we are applying these search terms to uncover relevant shipments, a financial institution may generate many false positives. You know, we're doing the screening and we're looking at that particular material that relates to fiberglass, meaning the search results that are upon subsequent inspection involve like, you know, routine shipments that do not fall under the classification of dual-use goods. And furthermore, a dual-use goods could function as a component of a product or a technology that requires further examination to screen and investigate thoroughly. So, it's, you know, how do we manage that as a financial institution? How do we facilitate that payment and agree to release that payment? I mean, we can never eliminate, you know, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. But what we can do is to put ourselves uh, in a defensible position to demonstrate that you have uh, identified the documentation and the data that arrive in the system and corresponding to, you know, a database that relates to, say, a, a, a common reference point such as the International Chamber of Commerce to bring together that, inf that information to help you synthesize and determine whether it's reasonable uh, for that particular vessel to send that fiberglass to the destination. And also thinking about the end-to-end -end supply chain, right? where is it coming from and where is it going to? And who are the people that are buying and who are the people that are selling? And you know, drilling it down to you know, know your customer, know your customer's customer, and know your suppliers. And that is a whole different ballgame because what we're trying to do here is, is not trying to comply with the legislation. What we're trying to do is trying to manage the risk. So you need to come to a conclusion whether you have reasonably applied all the necessary things 
uh, that are required using the technology, using the data to give you the, the rich data insights to form a conclusion that you know, this is a legitimate and genuine transaction and that you have you know, hardened it enough to ensure that no criminal perpetrators are being used uh, are using this platform to facilitate you know, terrorist financing or money laundering. That is the beginning when you do the identification. You look at the documentation on the goods and the vessels that supply in the maritime trade. And then we look into accelerating that process because one complete end-to-end -end cycle takes you know, days and weeks. So which makes it even more challenging for banks to say, it's too hard. I just don't want to do it. But there is this $1.7 trillion gap in trade that we must recognize. Then we need to do something about it to accelerate, to do transformation, to make it easier for people to, for a human to receive that information and say, this is what I understand. And now I'm making that decision on these basis because these are the rich data that I've derived. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like your answers. Um, and I sense some passion in your in your answer, um, but I, I I also um, I also hear at the back of my mind the 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 risk based approach coming through in what you say, and it, and it is around for many of these entities um, dealing with all these facets of of money laundering um, is is to deal with that risk based approach to to managing their risk. I guess that's why the AML compliance process always has a risk assessment for the entity to create about its um, um, openness, shall we say, to, to being used for, for the purposes of money laundering, um, and then the programme to, to how it mitigates those risks. But, but it's, it's critical that what you're saying um, is, is basically what FATF have been saying right at the start, and that was having a risk-based approach to it. So um, thank, thank you for that answer. Um, uh, Joanne, um, I'm not going to let you off the hook, but your social network analysis um, is, is one is one sort of um, critical component to to finding um, real in-depth findings, usable findings from from your research. Um, did you find that there was um, any other um, uh, tools that you you've, you've used so far, or thinking about using, or or contemplated to really give you that? Um, you know, that, that in-depth knowledge. Yes, thank you for your question, Nicholas. Um, yeah, I just uh, started my PhD project and uh, I've so far uh, only used the social network analysis to get more insight into the collaboration of the money launderers. Um, but in the future, I um, yeah, want to get uh, to gain a deeper understanding of how these collaborations um, actually work. Therefore, I also uh, want to use some uh, case files and I want to do interviews with um, prosecutors and case analysts from the police uh, who have more insight in, in these cases. And um, using these kinds of, uh, of data, uh, yeah, uh, I think it's, it's uh, uh, better possible to, to interpret the, the quantitative uh, results from social network analysis, uh, because now we see that uh, money owners work together because they uh, have contact registrations in the same cases, but yeah, what they're actually doing and how they are collaborating, uh, we don't see in network analysis. Uh, so that's uh, where we need the qualitative data for. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And um, that's of course interesting because you're actually going to ask people um, their opinions at, at the same time as asking them 
what what they actually factually know as being correct. So if you're yep. if you're talking to prosecutors and law enforcement, you'll get really that information of what they've seen and heard. But actually asking them that opinion will give you that extra depth to your research. So um, I think I've just increased your inbox of um, requests to read your PhD, um, hopefully a little bit more because um, being able to triangulate those findings will will certainly provide um, a, a good a good benchmark for a similar type of study in other places. And it's not always easy to um, to to hone that research down into a particular country or particular jurisdiction. So. Um, yeah, so whilst it may be in the in the early stages, it's um, certainly some um, some really good um, you know findings to come, and um, hopefully you've have some excited supervisors who are really keen to um, to see the, the research go along. Um, we we've only got um, five minutes left, and I thought five minutes was um, a good benchmark to start saying um, and basically copying. Um, from the the previous uh, session that I watched, which was around if you had um, 60 seconds to what I would say, um, and I've put this angle on myself, you know, this idea that if you had one thing um, that you would like to see change for or one particular silver bullet, whether it be um, so far in your research, whether it be to support your research or just in generally um, in terms of the area and the topic you've discussed, but what's that one thing that if somebody could take away from yours and go away in action today, um, that, that it would it would make hopefully a big difference to to essentially you know over the next twelve months. Um, so when we come back to this particular event next year, hopefully that we can actually say in twelve months, um, twelve months ago I heard this and I've it's gone away and been actioned. What would be the ideal one thing? And it doesn't have to be anything complicated. It become something quite simple related to your research or. It could be, um, you know, that blue sky thinking idea that just just one thing. And we'll, we'll go in reverse order and we'll start with uh, Derek, please, if that's all right. The promotion of up to date research. Uh, and the, and the, the sharing of uh, information uh, on, on, a, on a global capacity uh, and real time information, because I, th I think one of the problems, uh, both about the, the practical information and also the, the, the study of this is that, um, you know, quite often you're working with information that's completely outdated. Like, you know, if you, if you take kind of the, some of the strongest sociological uh, concepts of you know, the Chicago School, that was 1966 in Chicago. And the concepts, absolutely. But the material is root, rooted in 1966. So I think it's very much for up to date and supporting the sharing of information. Yeah, really nice answer, and um, I'd have to agree with you. Um, so, so yeah, thank you for that. And I saw a few other nods. So I think you're definitely on um, on the, on the right track there, and we all agree. Um, Crispin, over to you, please. Um, I would I would propose. Um, we need to think about, you know, in a rapidly changing financial crime threat environment, uh, we need to adopt an intelligence-led approach to, you know, achieve a robust, you know, mitigating mitigation strategy. And, you know, that's how I see it to, you know, that's what we should be focusing on, an intelligence-led approach. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And if you look at it, if you look at policing going back a number of years in the UK, 
Um, they, they created a, an intelligence-led police model, and many countries do use that intelligence. Um, but I think we, we overuse sometimes the word intelligence when we actually mean information. So, but I'm, I yeah, I'm fully agree with you. Um, John, um, one, one question, from, uh, one answer from you, please. Um, yes, I think it uh, would actually be great if the type of data that I'm currently using in the Netherlands uh, would also be available uh, in other countries for researchers there. Um, uh, and I think that will also support the intelligence-led uh, approach that uh, Crispin uh, mentioned. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, that would be that would be a very desirable position. Maybe uh, once you've finished your study, the actual approach can be replicated somewhere else. Um, if you can find a willing um, country to offer that information. Uh, Mecca, please. Yeah, no, from, from my side, I, I would really uh, hope for, um, you know, more empirical research on, on, the, on this topic based on, you know, new trends uh, and patterns because, as we know, we, we know very little at the moment. And so um, really gaining empirical insights from actually new data would be really great uh, allowing us to say are we actually looking in the right direction at the moment what would be what we could improve in the future and so on and so forth so i would definitely say more empirical research and also more data actually to, to use in um, in analysis both in the academia and in the private sector definitely yeah super yeah i agree with you and um, i was completely um and the, the use of empirical data and, and research um, sort of comes truly from a, a passionate researcher. So um, well done, and I'm, I'm fully with you for that. Um, and if I can add anything, I would say we, we throw everything away and we start with a whiteboard and we learn to understand money laundering as it is now. We ask those people and we get a clear understanding of money laundering in what will be 2022. So... Um, I, I'm, I'm told I only have one minute left, so um, as a, out of complete respect for my um, co-speakers, I would like to uh, thank you very much for your time and the interesting presentations. You've put a lot of effort into these, um, and they've been um, clearly what is the start of a lot of uh, more discussion to come from that. Um, yeah, it, it's just been um, an absolute pleasure to... to um, moderate this session. Um, I'd like to remind those that are listening if they would, can head back to the conference website, rc24.haysummit.com um, and view some, um, some further upcoming interesting sessions. Um, it's been a pleasure to moderate and um, thank you to the team at RC24 for your um, hard work and effort and um, ongoing support with such activities because I know many of you are volunteers. Um, so I'd like to um, say thank you once again to everybody and wish you um, um, wish you all the best wherever you are in the world and um, hope 2022 serves you um, uh, nice returns. Okay, thank you. Bye, everybody. Thank you. thank you for listening to the OC24 podcast. For more talks, have a look at the podcast feed on whichever platform you use. There are loads more to listen to. Video versions of these talks are also available on the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime YouTube channel. If you would like to share these talks around, we ask that you use the hashtag OC24 and let us know what you think. 
The 24-hour conference on global organised crime is brought to you by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group on Organised Crime, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. For more information, head over to oc24.globalinitiative.net. This has been the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Thanks for listening.